You're listening to The Best Possible Taste on West Limerick 102 FM. Good evening and welcome to this week's Best Possible Taste. I'm Sharon Noonan and tonight's guests include Sid Sheehan, who is a chef and nutritionist. Sid is going to be in the studio to talk about celiac disease. Coffee Culture's Alan Andrews has exciting news about a community garden project in Bird Hill, County Tipperary. Food writer Dee Laffin shares her culinary experience from a recent visit to South Africa. And finally, at the end of the show, Fulcher Ireland's Sinead Hennessy has news about a new seafood trail on the Wild Atlantic Way. A reminder as to how to get in touch with me, you can drop me an email s.noonan at live.ie or you can tweet me at Queen of Org as in Queen of Organisation. And it is always great to hear from you. Now, next month sees a week long of events to highlight awareness about celiac disease. So our resident nutritionist, Sid Sheehan, joins me in the studio now to talk about it in more detail. Bon appétit. Yummy. Grubs up. Delicious. Mmm. Sid, welcome back to the studio. Thanks again. Tonight we're going to talk about celiac disease. Yes. And let's start with what exactly is it? Because celiac disease, gluten-free, are they the same or are they not the same? Okay, so a celiac, or if you're diagnosed with celiac disease, um, the treatment for it currently in Ireland and globally is to strict adherence to a gluten-free diet. So 100% gluten-free. That is the only way that you will be able to combat the disease. Uh, what exactly is celiac disease? It's a chronic autoimmune digestive disorder. Um, it results in inflammation of the small intestine when gluten is ingested or eaten. Uh, so that's what celiac disease is. Um, celiac are gluten intolerance and wheat intolerance. I know an awful lot of these kind of get thrown around there, these terms. So if somebody is diagnosed with a wheat intolerance, uh, gluten is a component of wheat. It's the protein component in wheat. So if you have a food intolerance test or if you speak to a nutritionist like me and if, you know, if you're advised that you may have a wheat intolerance, you, you shouldn't really be going into a restaurant saying that I'm after being told I'm a celiac. You're not. There is only one way to find out if you're a celiac and that is by going to your GP and they will refer you to have um, the... Uh, the tests done to determine if you are celiac or not. So, so does that mean if you're gluten free, you can tolerate some things that a celiac cannot tolerate? So some people, if they okay, if you're gluten intolerant, you need to avoid the same products or the same foods. But with an intolerance, you can overcome a food intolerance. Okay. Uh, by following an elimination diet. So let's just say if you have a gluten intolerance, um, by eliminating gluten out of your diet entirely for about a ninety day period then there are chances are that you will be able to overcome that food intolerance a lot of the time and you can start to reintroduce the food. It's the same with most um, food intolerances. They can be overcome. Whereas a celiac disease is very different. You have to eliminate gluten for the rest of your life. What are the symptoms then of celiac disease? Okay, so most people that have it, um, symptoms can be really, really distressing. Um, some, from bloating and excess wind, that's kind of on the lower end of the scale. You can get severe abdominal pain and cramping. Um, and generally as well people will have diarrhea and or constipation. And if you're gluten intolerant, would you have some of those symptoms but not to the same extent? Not to the same extent. Um, yeah, the symptoms can be pretty similar. But um, it is something I think that people, certainly food handlers as well, because being a chef myself and having worked in the industry for years, a customer may come in and say that they're a celiac and in the past, I would have been certainly guilty of treating it almost like a lifestyle choice. Like, I decided to be a vegetarian, I decided to be a celiac. And, you know, obviously now I know a little bit better about it. But, um, yeah, so I actually came across a friend of mine last year, and she was in a very well-known eatery in Dublin, and she ordered a tomato soup, and she asked, she made it very clear to the, the waitress that she was celiac. So the tomato soup came out, and she called her back over, and she said, look, is that barley that's floating around inside in the soup? Because barley, again, is a grain that contains gluten. So waitress took it back into the kitchen, apologised, brought the soup out a couple of minutes later, and, you know, she thought... I'm not too sure about this. The soup looked the same. So she called the food handler back over again, or the waitress. And what they had done was, the chef, he sieved the barley out of the soup. 
So that is not really... Um, Absolutely not, yeah. So we, we do need to be aware. I, I think it is about education because I think education. a lot of people don't realise the, the, like the difference between them. If you are celiac and you do cut out the gluten, like, does it take for... Can you, can you be cured very quickly? As in, like, if after five days after your body had maybe detoxed from it, would you be feeling great, fantastic? No, and it'll take a little bit longer okay. than that because your small intestine has become so inflamed and irritated. It'll take a long time for that to repair itself and heal up and seal up and all of that as well. So it can be a long enough process. Um, and I wouldn't say that you can be cured as such it's just treated with um, elimination or managed through eliminating gluten and are there any foods that are quite good for speeding up that process there are some foods um, one of the good ones that's used is a good homemade bone broth um, something like Hearing that so much about bone broth of these are absolutely brilliant for healing your gut or your, your intestine um, it's brilliant now you can take supplements as well to do that but you can do it through your diet um, so you want to go for foods that won't irritate. Uh, so maybe if you are um, a very, very hypersensitive celiac and if you're trying to correct things and manage it, um, maybe stay away from foods that would aggravate it. So really, really spicy foods and stuff like that may aggravate it. So go for a nice kind of soft, kind of clean diet for a little while just to give everything a chance to relax and for the inflammation to go down. Um, I would suspect that a lot of people think that if they are celiac or they're gluten-free, well, then there's very few nice things out there for them. But you have a lovely recipe to share tonight. You certainly don't have to uh, go out if you're celiac. Uh, Maybe in the past you did, but um, even if you go into any shop now, they all have a fantastic range of gluten-free products and the sweet ones as well. But look, the one that I have tonight is a good homemade one because... Again, if you're going to buy the muffins or whatever they are, the gluten-free ones in the shop, have a look at what's in them. There's going to be lots and lots of preservatives and fats and all that put in there. So the one that I have tonight, it's a gluten-free orange and almond cake. So there's no flour in this cake. Uh, Ground almonds is the, the base for the cake. It's really simple. There's only five ingredients in the cake and it's the easiest thing in the world to make. So we can give a run through that if you like. Yep, great. Okay, so there's two stages to the cake. The first one is uh, making orange pulp. And once you have the orange pulp made, that's the hardest work out of the way. So generally what I would do is get maybe a big bag of oranges, a net of them, and cook the whole lot of them together. And then once they're cooked and you have the pulp made, you can divide it out into the required um, amounts. So to make your orange pulp, get your oranges, don't pierce them, don't cut them, don't do anything to them whole oranges into a pot cover them with water bring them to the boil keep them covered all the time so keep the pot topped up and you want to boil them for one hour um, it's a long time it's a long time say t- that the kitchen will smell lovely yeah it's nice uh, so after an hour fish them out of the water and just pop them onto a plate and let them cool down so you haven't peeled them or cut them or anything at this stage once they're completely cooled down then you can cut them open remove the pips if there are any if there are pips in there Um, But you want to keep the skin. That's where most of the flavor in the orange is going to be. So then into a food processor, or you can just put them into a bowl and with a stick blender, just um, mush them up. Now, they don't have to be complete puree or liquid. You actually want little flecks of the the peel or the orange skin going through the cake afterwards. So that is all there is to making the orange pulp, that there is nothing added to it. To be honest now, whenever you said about orange pulp, I was saying to myself, oh my God, Like there's going to be so much work in, in this, no. but that is so simple. It's really, really simple. So that's probably the easiest thing to do. Generally, what I would do is big batch of it, divide it out. Um, this cake will run through it. It takes 375 grams of cooked orange pulp. So when you do a big batch of it, just weigh it out into 375 gram batches, pop them in freezer bags and freeze it down until you're ready to, to use it. The next step then, once okay. you have the pulp. So you need 375 grams of orange pulp. You need 250 grams of ground almonds. You need a teaspoon of gluten-free baking powder. You need six whole eggs. And you need 250 grams of xylitol. Tell us about xylitol now. I've heard of it, so just tell the listeners what it is. Okay, xylitol is an alternative to using white refined table sugar. It's one of the few alternatives out there that works really well for baking. By all means, you can use 250 grams of caster sugar for this. I have done in the past. It works out equally well. Uh, but the xylitol is far, far better for you. It is a plant-based uh, sweetener, um, but it's 
okay, there's something called the glycemic index in all sweeteners. The glycemic index is simply how fast the the glue or the sugar is released into your bloodstream. So the glycemic index of xylitol is seven, whereas compared to uh, white refined table sugar, glycemic index of that is between 60 and 70. So this isn't, xylitol will not affect your blood sugars in the same way that other sugars will. So go for xylitol. It is a bit more expensive, but it's an awful lot healthier than regular white sugar. So for your, we've gone through the orange pulp. That's the few ingredients that are inside that. It's simply put everything into a bowl and mix it together. You don't need um, a mixer or anything like that. Um, so add all the ingredients into a bowl. Mix them well with a whisk or a wooden spoon, just something they're well combined. And you want to line an 8-inch cake tin, round or square, it doesn't really matter. Uh, line the base of it and the sides of it with parchment paper, and you pour your mix in. So at this stage, this isn't going to look like a standard cake mix, it's more of a batter, so it's almost pouring consistency. Pour it in, have your oven preheated to 180 Celsius and you want to bake the cake for one hour. Uh, so maybe you can cover it with some tin foil uh, for the last 20 minutes of cooking, just so the top of it doesn't kind of brown too much. Um, take it out of the tin and you can enjoy it hot or cold. It's a really moist cake. You don't need to fill it. You don't need to ice it or anything. It's perfect on its own. It sounds lovely. It's really, really nice. You're having a gluten-free class on Monday the 9th of May and will this be one of the dishes that's covered? Yeah, we're going to cover the, the cake on that one. So Monday the 9th of May is the, the first day of Celiac Awareness Week so we'll kickstart things that week with a gluten-free class so there'll be savoury and sweet stuff so we'll cover some breads we'll do this cake and a few other bits and pieces as well and as with all the classes there'll be lots of tips on the night as well And tell me where people can get more information or to book that what do they do do they go to the website? Yeah you can have a look on the website which is nourishbynature.ie um, you can have a look on our Facebook page so if you want to find us on Facebook it's Nourish by Nature stall and you'll get the contact number and stuff then as well if you want to book that way over the phone. Great. Okay, well I look forward to making that cake. No, it sounds lovely. Yeah, have, have a try. Just have a small bit of a, at a time. Um, obviously it is still a sugar at the end of the day so oh, moderation. Be, I was thinking it was one of my five a day <laughs> with all those oranges in it. Don't ruin it for me. Tell yourself that. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks a million. We'll talk to you again soon. Thanks again, Sharon. Cheers. Chin chin. Salut. Schleinte. Good to talk to Sid in the studio and I'm really liking that recipe there. It sounds delicious. If you do have a question for him that's nutrition related, please send it to me, s.noonan at live.ie and I'll pass it on to him the next time he's in the studio. Still to come tonight, food writer Dee Laffin shares her culinary experience from a recent visit to South Africa and Fulcher Ireland's Sinead Hennessy has some very exciting news about a seafood trail on the wild Atlantic Way. Next, though, it's time to turn our attention to a new community garden that was launched in Bird Hill, County Tipperary, last week. And Alan Andrews from Coffee Culture, who has a barista academy in the village, is on the phone now to tell us more. Bon appétit. Yummy. Grubs up. Delicious. Mmm. Alan, thanks so much for joining me on the programme this evening. Very exciting things happening in Bird Hill in County Tipperary. I know, it's great. Thanks for for letting me on the show, Uh, Sharon. It's great to be here. Last Thursday night, you launched a community garden. Tell us a bit about that. Well, we had uh, we had some great interest with um, the, the small community in Bird Hill um, going back a couple of months since we took over the building um, there in the middle of the the village. It was an old um, the building was an old barracks going back to 1960, and and it is actually built originally uh, 300 years ago. So it has been a focal point in the village for for a number of years. And when we took over the building itself, we, we, we wanted to, uh, you know, come up with ideas and, and ways that we could include the community. Um, and one of them, of course, because we're in the coffee business, will be to open a cafe there in time. But uh, in preparation for that, uh, we, we had the idea to open a community garden uh, or to create a community garden. And, and we were lucky enough to, to there were a really active local Tide Towns committee. And they, they have helped us put together the community garden. So, yeah, we launched it last um, last Thursday night. People will be familiar with Bird Hill from before the M7 was built because it would have been one of those villages that you passed through on the way from Dublin to Limerick. And it, it was always a very well-maintained and very picturesque village, if my memory serves me correct. Yeah, they've, they've, they have won a lot of uh, accreditation for, uh, I suppose, the upkeep of the village and... Um, 
just general, you know, the Tidy Towns competition itself, they've always, they've always been up there, you know, winning prizes and getting first. And, um, uh, you know, it was on the back of that, really, that we wanted to help the community and do something for the village. The building that we took over um, hadn't, hadn't really been used to its full potential in the last couple of years. So we felt we could, you know, create a bit more of a focus and, and give something back to the village as well. So that's what we're that's what we're trying to do there. Tell us a little bit about coffee culture because you have a training academy there which might be something that people haven't heard about before. Yeah, I suppose it's pretty new. Um, certainly outside of Dublin because we started off originally back in 2009 and we opened the first coffee training school or barista academy in Dublin back in 2010. And at the time when we opened the, the school, you know, the economy was, was very low and people I guess were, were you know they were they were spending more on coffee than they were on, on going out for dinner so in one way it was opportune um, time to do it um, but since then the business itself coffee culture has grown and we 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 sell coffee we import coffee and we sell it to cafes so there's a cafe in Newcastle West uh, Sonus House Foods there on the square um, and they buy our coffee and they, they would have come to our our academy now that's open in Bird Hills so we've a We've opened a training school in Bird Hill where we, we train people basically all over Munster how to make coffee. And you're a training partner for Diageo Learning for Life Hospitality Programme. Yeah, we have a lot of... Um, I suppose our, our business predominantly is towards cafe owners, um, baristas working in the industry or people looking to get into the industry and some some large... Uh, we have some large corporate clients. Diageo uh, would be one. And we, we run a... A, a learning uh, for life uh, corporate social responsibility program for Diageo. So we have we have educated and trained. I think it's about ninety two uh, job seekers. So they would be um, job seekers that are on the live register for more than six months, but less than two two years. And as part of the corporate and social responsibility program with Diageo, we um, we run the. Barista Foundation modules, and then Diageo develop uh, for the two months of training around hospitality. So it might be restaurant service, or uh, cooking, or food preparation and presentation, or bar work, or cocktail work. Would, or, it, would it be fair to say that coffee consumption has grown considerable in the past few years, and that there's lots of different choice and different options, different varieties out there for people now? You must have seen a huge difference in the industry over the past few years. Oh, definitely. I think going back to um, well, you know, most people would not know that in, in 2008, Ireland would have had a, a world champion barista. So, so since then, um, I know the economy, as I said earlier, was a little bit low, 2009, 2010. But people have become more aware of coffee, and we're more we're more aware of what we can what we can buy in terms of the coffee quality. We're also more aware of what options are out there, and and people more educated. Um, I think as well socially the the um, social behaviour of people has changed. Um, we don't drink and drive as much anymore. We don't socialise in, in pubs as much as we used to. Certainly, we're looking for more uh, types of, how would you say, more social outlets that are not alcohol-focused or alcohol-centric. So coffee and cafes will come to the fore in that respect. And you also run Start Your Own Cafe workshops because I feel a lot of people have a dream about opening uh, a cafe they think it would be a very nice business to own yeah. and to run yeah that's that is true and we we run um yeah we we, we run a start your own cafe workshop every quarter so um every three months and that would run either in bird hill or in dublin usually they are alternative quarters and we run on each each general area um so that's the the idea behind that is that as you say people have a dream of opening a cafe they don't quite know what's involved in doing that but they know that maybe it's something that they would like to do or they they perceive a certain lifestyle that's involved in owning a cafe or running a cafe and it can be it can be very rewarding it can be it can be great but it's at the same time it's a business so it is hard work and i think what we try to do is demystify the amount of challenges that are involved or or demystify the the fantasy as well um and also be very real when we when we give people guidance and um insight into how uh, you can open a cafe or what's involved in, in opening a cafe and putting together a vision and that's the that's the biggest thing is, is helping people put together their vision and helping them 
create an offering that you know the public want and will enjoy. When you say demystify, is that code for telling them they must be mad in the head and that it's really it's really hard work and it's long hours and you must be really passionate about it if you're going to take it on? Yeah, well, look, I, I think the reality here is that a lot of people um, could think that cafes and coffee shop business is great business um, and it's easy, and but, but no business is easy. You know, and you do, as you say, you have to be passionate about what you do, so... There will always be people who, who, you know, who might think that a certain type of idea will work, or somebody is doing a, you know, a, a great concept and they want to copy it. But, but it's not really their own cafe idea. So really, we have to, you know, the, the trick is finding something that you're passionate about and that you want to deliver. And that could be a, you know, a cafe bar. It could be a coffee shop. It could be a delicatessen. It could be an artisan food hall with with coffee offering. And, and really just trying to get people passionate about what, what they're interested in and selling that on to, you know, to the target market, to their, to their uh, you know, the people they think want, want to experience that. So, they, yeah, it is, there is an element of demystifying fantasy, but also being very real about, you know, how do you do it and how to, how to take the right steps to, to do it and, and how can you go about funding it, how can you go about building, designing, making sure that you don't fall foul of, planning regulations or environmental health responsibilities um, and even human resource responsibilities in terms of recruitment. There's loads there that, that we deal with. You talk about being passionate about something and finding your calling. You clearly have found it in having the barista school because even to locate it in somewhere as remote as as Bird Hill, some people might think, why would you do that? And the, the building itself, I believe, has an interesting story that it used to be a respite centre. That's right. Yeah, it's as I said earlier, it's three hundred years old. Um, seems to date back to around seventeen twenty, and uh, there was a respite centre there uh, run for nurses, and that would have been run at the time, we believe, by um, by by uh, nuns and maybe a, one of the nun orders. So we're we're still trying to get the the full details on that, but there's loads of history on the building, and. Um, uh, you know, for what we want to achieve there in time, we'd like to open a cafe. So, uh, you know, we want to have something that would be a destination. Um, and we, we know from, well, since 2010, we know that people will travel from all over Ireland for, for good quality professional training. And that's certainly something that we have, we have carved a, a niche in the market for. And we, we, we're now respected for the fact that we're delivering, you know, leading training for the industry and, really measurable training and that's what's really important that's what cafe owners really want they don't want to spend a couple of hundred euros sending someone on a course and, and they don't know what the outcomes are meant to be um, so that locating the business in Bird Hill was just we, we came across the building and there was an opportunity there we, we've had a really um, easy I suppose negotiations with the landlord because they, they saw our vision and understood our vision um, so that has been great in terms of dealing with them and, and they've supported us um, so now, really, it's just a matter of just being patient, taking our time to get the building looking right, building the community gardens, getting the outside of the building looking sharp and smart. So, like, there's a lot of work to be done with trees and gardens, so it's quite a big space overall. I think we've got about 5,000 square foot, maybe 6,000 square foot. And the building itself is 3,000, so we've a, we have a good bit of work to do in the gardens. And this is just, you know, the community garden is the first step, and hopefully you know, our vision of getting the cafe opening open there and, you know, build, building just a, a, a community centre, like a, a, you know, a third place for people to come where they don't have to be in a, a pub or, or home or work and they can just be somewhere else and be, be social, you know. Well, it sounds like it's an amazing space. I, I'll have to take a detour off the M7 someday and, and call in to, to have a look around. I believe you have fabulous old school chairs there as well. Yeah, we got these, we got these great chairs uh, from a nun's convent up in uh, Temple Moor, I think. Um, and we've, we've, been, we've, been, we've been looking around for, uh, I suppose, some retro furniture, yeah, to, to, um, that, that, that might complement our story. So yeah, so that's so we managed to find some nun chairs and uh, or concert chairs, I guess you could call them, and um, we're just going to keep adding bits and pieces. And we're we're actually going to call the building now. We've renamed it or, or we've given it back uh, and created a website for the old barracks. So it's going to be called the old barracks. Super. And we when we open our cafe there and um, our artisan food hall, it'll be called the old car- the old barracks. Um, 
you know, food hall and cafe. Very yeah. cool indeed. Alan, listen, congratulations yeah. with it all and best of luck with it. Thanks for telling us about it this evening. Thanks, Sharon. Lovely to be lovely to be included in your show. Appreciate it. You're listening to The Best Possible Taste on West Limerick 102 FM. Welcome back to The Best Possible Taste with me, Sharon Noonan. Just before the break, Alan Andrews from Coffee Culture was telling us about a new community garden in Bird Hill, County Tipperary. And if you're just joining us and you want to have a listen to the start of the show, which included a fantastic recipe by nutritionist Sid Sheehan, it will be up in the podcast later in the week and you'll find it on soundcloud.com forward slash food dash and dash drink dash show or subscribe free of charge and download it on iTunes or use the podcast app. Our next interview this evening is going to be of interest to you if you like hearing about different cuisines. Dee Laffin is a food writer who recently enjoyed a fantastic trip to South Africa and she joins us on the line now to tell us all about her culinary experiences there. Cheers. Chin chin. Salut. Schleiter. Dee, you're very welcome to the programme this evening. Thanks so much. Thanks, Sharon. And weren't you the lucky girl that spent the month of January in Cape Town because you family members over there. So that must have been a fantastic opportunity for you. Yeah, no, it was great. I decided to January be my quietest month. And I just decided, you know, if you're going to go somewhere like South Africa, you might as well go for at least like three weeks. So I took the month of January and I went to visit my stepsister and her family um, and they live just outside Cape Town in a place called Parle which people who've been there would know it's kind of like on the way to it's in the Winelands and it's on the way up around where Stellenbosch and Franzhoek and places like that are um, which a lot of people you know if they go to Cape Town tend to visit the wine regions that are around it because it's it's famous for that so it was I was really fortunate and it's a really great time of year um, I mean, well, January, February would actually be their, their hottest month. So you, you are, if you don't like heat, I mean, I was dealing with, you know, kind of 38, 39 degrees most of the time that I was there. So it is stifling. If you're not, you know, if you're not, if you don't like heat, I mean, you're better off waiting to go. I think March or April would be really nice because it's kind of heading from their summer into their autumn. It's a little bit cooler or else you could go in like November or December. It's more like their springtime. So it's really nice. Um, you won't always get, may not get always a nice day, but, you know, it'll be nice kind of manageable temperatures. Well, when the weather is so hot like that, it's very important to stay hydrated. So what better excuse then to be trying <laughs> out the South African wines? Yeah, absolutely. And there are so many. I mean, I really, um, if if you're going over and you're a wine connoisseur, you'll be, you know, you literally can just map out where you want to go and do a bit of research. If, if you're just somebody who's heading over and you just want to try it out on a very, like, um, you know, a, a normal, like, basic level, then what I would suggest is try out some of the smaller ones. I mean, you know, Stellenbosch is really famous. It is amazing to go to, and it's amazing. The centre of it, there's a beautiful town or village that you can walk around. There's lovely tourist shops, places to eat, um, go and see. But also you can go to... I went to a couple of really local places um, that I'd never heard of before, and basically a winery over there as you drive in and uh, like you're on the wine farm you know there's there's a there's an area usually a restaurant or a cafe and a shop so you can buy the wine you can do a tasting you can have some lunch and the great thing is because the weather is good there's also always nearly always anyway an area for the kids to um to play like there'll be a playground right beside it and um so like a lot of people do go on a Sunday, you know, and have like Sunday lunch in a winery and hang out for the day and um, and the, the adults kind of taste wine. The kids get to play outside in the sun and it works out really well. So I highly recommend that. Um, and they're not far from Cape Town. You can hire a car. The great thing about South Africa is they drive on the same size of road as we do. So you don't have to worry about, you know, sometimes that can be a little bit um, awkward when you go somewhere that it's, we're driving on the wrong side or <laughs> the other side, not the wrong side. Um, so, yeah, you can hire a car. It's very cheap to hire a car over there and you can drive around and do a little tour. Um, or if not, there are also tours from the bigger wineries that will pick you up in Cape Town and take you out there for the day and just do a day trip or something, you know? Sounds fantastic. Yeah, yeah, it's really good. But, um, I mean, it's... I think what really struck me was, I mean, the wine and everything is great. And I mean, I really enjoyed it. Don't get me wrong. Um, 
I think the food was the food scene over there was definitely um, something that I found really interesting and just um, exciting. You know, there's a lot going on in Cape Town. Cape Town is like it really is for anyone who hasn't been there. It's a, it's it's the perfect tourist kind of spot to go to. If you want to go to Africa, you've never been there before. I had never been to Africa before, or um, you know, and, and it would be, I suppose the least African kind of city in terms of because they do get a lot of tourists. So they, they have all the conveniences for people who need that sort of stuff when they go away. You know, if you're, if you want to read the African experience, I would suggest to go somewhere else um, to a different city in South Africa or North Africa. Um, but when you go to Cape Town, you can be assured that there are so many things to cater for tourists. You're by the sea, um, but also because of where, where, Cape Town is down the Cape, Cape Peninsula in the south. Um, they've got the Indian Ocean and the Atlantic Ocean, and they're you know they're near the Arctic Circle, so they've got all this all this cold water. So that you guys, you're 38 degrees, and you're looking out at this beautiful blue sea, but when you get in it, it's absolutely freezing. I think it's actually colder water than Ireland, you know, if you can believe it. So a lot of people don't go swimming for that reason. Um, there are warmer parts, warmer beaches, and stuff that you can go to, but the the point I'm trying to make is that um, you've got the sea, then in the then you know so you've got that you've got penguins there because of the cold weather which are great to go and see they're so friendly, and then you've got this beautiful mountain in the middle of Cape Town which is called Table Mountain which is a great uh, mountain you can go up on a cable car and there's brilliant views, and then the city itself because of the cultural history, um, you know it's really really diverse um, and there's so much such a mix of different African regions and and people and uh, and and then also the you know the um Afrikaans history and everything and and uh, you can learn all about that and i mean it has been a very tempestuous history um but it, it is very interesting and it has made for a very interesting mix and a very interesting place to go and see and the food reflects that you've got influences from all all over the world really i mean you've got you've got your your kind of original african food then you've got, um, you know, you've got a lot of uh, obviously Dutch. There's a lot of Dutch influence, um, a lot of French and British as well. And then you've also got Malaysian. Um, there's there was an awful lot of um, people brought in as slaves years ago from the kind of Malaysian uh, countries um, or that kind of area. And so you've got this Cape Malay food that is found in in Cape Town. And there's a lot of that going on, um, curries and and spices and with African flavors in it. And it's it's really fantastic. And I actually did a cooking experience while I was there. It was called a Cape Malay cooking safari and um, in an area called Bocap, which is in um, downtown in Cape Town. And I were basically we were taken on a walking tour around Bocap. And then we went and did a cooking uh, demo, or not just a demo, it was a hands-on cookery class in someone's house, this lady's house, who just has been cooking for generations and is just a really amazing cook. And she taught us how to cook Cape Malay food. Um, and then we sat and had lunch with her. Um, and it was a really, really, truly great experience. So I highly recommend doing something like that. Did you find, because you were staying with a family member, that you were able to find a few nooks and crannies off the beaten track that other tourists might generally not be aware of or be made aware of? Um, I think I definitely, maybe with the wineries, definitely. And um, my stepsister recommended, yeah, a couple of, or she had heard of, a few restaurants, but actually that, that Cape Malay cooking safari, I actually contacted, went on to the, you know, I contacted the website for the Cape, um, Cape Town Tourism. Um, and they were like, all the information is there. They actually highlight quite a lot of different experiences, you know, more local experiences. But of course, uh, talking to a local, you're always going to, they're always going to let you know what their favorites are. So that definitely was, was helpful. Um, another person I met over there who actually recommended a few places and who I interviewed in the end ends up doing a bit of work on my holiday um, is a Dublin-born chef, uh, Liam Tomlin. And he basically he's left Ireland years ago and he kind of travelled uh, doing stages in different restaurants and he worked for a time in London and then he went to Australia for a long time and then he came to South Africa. And he's opened up his own restaurant there. I mean, it's years ago now um, and it's called the Chef's Warehouse and Canteen and it's on Bree Street. And Bree Street 
is this area in Cape Town, in like downtown Cape Town, which has become very popular, like that it had a lot of derelict buildings um, previously that are now being kind of changed into cool, very trendy restaurants. Um, so it's like, you know, some areas like that, where that's happening in Dublin at the moment, older areas that are being revamped as such. So he's opened up that there a couple of years ago. And um, the chef's warehouse side is almost like um, Avoca in terms of the shop element. It has like cookbooks and, and houseware and homeware and, and chef's equipment and stuff. And then the other the other side, the canteen is a little. Um, he has a tapas restaurant, and the food is outstanding. I mean, it's really amazing. It's high end, fine dining, but not in a fine dining setting. You're sitting on benches in this tiny little place, and you're surrounded by food products that he gets in that you can actually buy in there as well that he really loves. So that was brilliant, and he was a great guy to talk to um, about his experience in South Africa and what's happening there at the moment. I want to ask you about the types of like is it is it meat driven is it fish driven is it good for vegetarians like give me some specifics about the types of dishes you would have enjoyed when you were there sure Uh, it's definitely meat driven definitely meat driven they they eat a lot of meat they do and they um in South Africa because of the weather they barbecue a lot but they call it braai b or double a i um so you'd see braai is everywhere like I mean you know in pubs would have a braai or or restaurants and they would they would have it on the menu um and so if you know if you're vegetarian though it, there are equally as many vegetarian dishes you know it's just that they that primarily would be very meat based um they eat a lot of um a lot of lamb a lot of um obviously they've got springbok over there um but a real variety of meats um, so barbecue food is something. Then they also have um, what I noticed on menus across Cape Town anyway, is, you know, this whole paleo food kind of movement and people who are into that, which is where you don't eat grains and it's all organic food and stuff like that. They have um, they have a name for that over there. They call it banting. So on every menu you go to, and every or sorry, every restaurant you go to on the menu, they'll have a section called the banting section. And that will be your healthy, it might be gluten-free, it might be courgette instead of spaghetti. It might be, um, you know, it'll be grain-free or dairy-free or gluten-free. And that's where you get that kind of... So I thought that that was really good for anyone who's who's following a strict diet or, or a healthy diet. There was definitely a common um, acknowledgement of that on all menus across restaurants. Um, also as well, there was... Um, you know, a lot of restaurants would have gluten-free and would cater for special dietary requirements. I found that that was very common. Unless you're going to a very traditional restaurant, um, that would be... And in in African, uh, very traditional foods, as I said, would be meat-based and they would be kind of stews and, and spicy um, spicy meats and things like that. Um, I'm trying to think of what else. They, they, oh, there's an ama- there was an amazing food market there, um, uh, called the Neighbour Goods Food Market, which is at the old biscuit mill in Woodstock, which is Woodstock is an area in uh, Cape Town, and I I can't recommend that food market enough. It is amazing, and it's not not just a place where you go to pick up food products, but it's also a place where you just go to sit and eat and just experience food. So be, you'll sit in the middle in like a a communal area, you know, benches and things like that, and then all around the edges of the of the um. The, the space that they use there's all these different restaurants that have stalls and you can just pick anything you want to eat and it's absolutely fantastic it certainly sounds like you had an incredible time just before you go if you had to pick one meal or one highlight from the the visit over there what would it be um there were so many great meals um i think definitely just to give a shout out to liam tomlin's the chef's warehouse the meal there was fantastic, the tapas. Um, but I think one of the nicest foods um, that I had was the Cape Malay curry, which I did on the on the cookery course. Um, it was just it had beautiful flavors. It was like a almost like a masamam curry, where it has the potato in it with chicken, and then beautiful curry flavors. But then with this like Malaysian kind of Thai almost spices in there as well. So 
I really thoroughly enjoyed that. And just the experience of the fact that I had helped cook it, I knew how to, I'd learned how to cook it and then sat with this woman who was just like fourth generation, you know, from, um, of, of a family who'd been there and in the area. I just, you can, I mean, that's the kind of food experience you want, you know, and it'll definitely be a long lasting memory for me. If you had to make that at home then, would you have access to all the various different ingredients yeah. and spices? Yeah, no, it's not anything, it's not anything, um, you can get all the spices here, but it's just how they kind of put it together. So, and we got the recipes as well. So um, I have made it since I came home and it's, it's, it's brilliant. Like, it's really good. Well, as I say, a fantastic trip, D. Lucky girl now. Yeah. And thanks so much for sharing the experience with us. It's, I, I know it's it's definitely one of those places that my husband in particular has always wanted to visit. My parents yeah. have been lucky enough to be there and had, I'd say, the trip of a lifetime. It's just yeah. one of the best holidays they've ever it's, had. So It's brilliant. And I have to say, just again, just the Cape Town Tourism website or... Um, you know, any of those, they're really helpful when you contact them for and, and they'll give you maps or, you know, whatever you want to do. I mean, there's a whole waterfront area in Cape Town that is littered with restaurants, but also fun for kids. You know, like you were saying with the family, it's definitely a place to take a family. There's so much to do. OK, great. Listen, Dee, good as always to talk to you and we will keep in touch. Brilliant. Thanks so much, Sharon. Cheers. Bye. You're listening to The Best Possible Taste on West Limerick 102 FM. Welcome back to The Best Possible Taste with me, Sharon Noonan. Just before the break, Dee Laffin shared her culinary adventures in South Africa. And earlier in the show, Alan Andrews from Coffee Culture had details about a recently launched community garden in Bird Hill, County Tipperary. If you've missed any of the show so far, which included a fantastic recipe by Sid Sheehan at the very start of the show, have a look at the podcast on soundcloud.com forward slash food and drink show. We'll be putting the show up there later in the week or you can subscribe free of charge and download it through iTunes or use the podcast app. Now it's time for the final interview of the evening and this is one I recorded when I was out and about recently and I called in to see Sinead Hennessy at Fulcher Ireland who had some very exciting news about a seafood trail on the wild Atlantic way. Bon appétit. Yummy. Grubs up. Delicious. Mmm. Sinead, it's great to meet up again. We usually talk about events, but you've one specific project that you're working on at the moment that you want to alert the listeners to. I do, I do. And it's something that we are really, really excited about here in Fulcher, Ireland. Um, Just to give it a little bit of a, a background, it's a seafood trail that is on the Wild Atlantic Way. This began, we began developing this last year and piloted a, a small section of it um, towards the during the season last year and what this seafood trail is is essentially it is it is it is from South Donegal to Kinvara and Galway Bay that section of the Wild Atlantic Way and it matches 11 really fantastic seafood producers along that section with 42 brilliant restaurant and hotel outlets that are, are in that section and essentially what the, the the whole point of this is to really really celebrate the businesses that are using local seafood on their menus and to highlight and celebrate the fact that we have the best seafood in the world on the west coast of Ireland. There is a lot of seafood to choose from there so give us a few examples of the types of dishes and products that people could enjoy. Well there is a broad spectrum of seafood, as you said. So we have the likes of Kelly's oysters on there. We have Marty's mussels. We have Mungo Murphy's. We have abalone, um, and we have some fantastic smokehouses. And I meant to mention to you as well. Actually, the the seafood producers that are on the trail, a lot of them you can actually go and visit and learn about the production. Um, they have gorgeous experiences in there where you can go in, taste. And learn and experience as well. So there's there's loads to do on this trail. Food tourism is huge in Ireland at the moment, and there's never been a better time to promote your business if it's in that field. Forty two places. It's not compulsory to visit everyone. I presume it's a self guiding no. tour, but it would be very good if if people could get to every single one and visit each producer. 
Well, yeah, and I think it's it's really special. Um, you know, the 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 businesses along the Wild Atlantic Way, as you said, food tourism has become huge and it's growing all the time. And really, really, what we are finding is that the the local um, restaurants, hotels, cafes—they're really beginning to 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 source more locally. They're beginning to highlight the fantastic produce that we have in Ireland. And it's not just seafood, it's it's other things as well. But that that is something that's that's really special, really important. And f- from even from my own perspective as a visitor, I'd like to know if I'm sitting in Etna's by the sea, exactly where where my, my seafood has come from and the story behind that. It is a collaborative project, so there's a number of of groups involved in it. it I, I would imagine to make an initiative like this successful, you really need the producers and the restaurateurs to drive it and push it. That's right. So this began. This was this came. This concept came from um, Bordish Guevara. So it is a collaboration between ourselves and BIM. Of course, all of the participants on on this trail have embraced it and are promoting it themselves and if you were to go and visit anyone on the trail they'd know um, they'd be able to tell you some of the stories of of the seafood producers of seafood along the wild atlantic way and of course be able to recommend the best dishes and the best tasting opportunities as part of the trail from a quality control perspective then what measures have you put in place to make sure that the restaurateurs adhere to to the the program and that they're not maybe using non-irish products well they they all have to sign up to a charter um i think you know um when when we started out with this, the the, the restaurants and the hotels have been nominated by the, the seafood producers. So basically, you know, if if a if a restaurant or a hotel is listed on the trail, then it has been verified that it is um, sourcing local seafood and it's featuring local seafood on its menu which is really important and it's really comforting from a a consumer's perspective as well. And given that this is the second year of it, it obviously was very successful last year. What was the feedback from consumers and from the the restaurateurs and producers? Well, like that, um, you know, the the trail, the feedback from the consumers was that it was great to eat local in local establishments, um, a great peace of mind there. Um, obviously, the, the the whole localization in food is is really really important, and it's something our visitors want. They want to eat in local establishments, and they want to eat in local food in local establishments. So that is really important. As well as that, we there was a huge surge in in sales from a seafood perspective, from a business seafood perspective, um, from the the participants of the trail, which is is really good. Um, if there is a surge in sales from a um, from a restaurant perspective, it means that there been there, there's more being consumed more being experienced and and the the visitors are getting a better quality product. Last year there was an event on in uh, in the Galway area Food on the Age which mm. is very much geared at chefs worldwide chefs come and present and then a lot of the Irish chefs as well as the public were welcome to come to it also but I did hear that as a result of that and from those international chefs visiting different restaurants and different producers in the area that a number of and in particular I'm thinking particular seafood Mm. is now available in some Michelin star restaurants in different parts of the world that's right we're seeing it um and 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 that's that just shows the 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 I think the importance of food we're seeing um this pop up ever since food in the age um Sharon I think Kelly's oysters has been um, featuring on a lot of international menus um, because like that these chefs came over Albert Adria, Nathan Outlaw they came over to Galway they went out, they visited Dermot in, at, on, the, on the seashore looked at the oyster beds, tasted the oysters and said that they needed to have them in their restaurant and that's really really good it's a really really positive thing for for the Irish food experience and for Irish food I think sometimes we're guilty of not appreciating or not knowing what is actually on our doorstep now Mm. I don't think that's just an Irish thing it's probably a worldwide thing so it's Mm. actually very important for people to get out there to think more about what they're eating to ask questions about where it's coming from absolutely I think you know from even from a, a, a domestic consumer perspective 
we are becoming very very sensitive to 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 where our food comes from um and and this whole concept of ethical sourcing making sure that the businesses that we are buying from are are feeding into a local community and we're not um purchasing things that have been mass produced or or i suppose imported the carbon footprint of 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 imported foods and stuff like that people you know like like the domestic market they're very very concerned about that we're seeing a huge rise in that concern and it's and it's actually a worldwide global um global concern that people have so from an international visitor perspective from tourism our visitors want to come to the wild Atlantic way they want to come to ireland they want to come to dublin and they want to experience foods of that area um, and from that area and i think it's really important that we celebrate and highlight when when people are doing that right and that's what this seafood trail is about really you said now this is the second year or so the mm. the the length of it for want of a better word has been a bit extended from last year if mm. it's if it's successful again this year which i'm sure you hope it is and it will be i'm sure I'm sure it will be Will it be extended then next year? Will it incorporate, come down a bit more? <laughs> well, I can't really say if it'll go up or down. Um, because it'll be going round. <laughs> if it went further up, it'd be going round. Yeah. Well, certainly, like that, it is a phased basis. Um, and it's it's not what I, I think it's, it's, it's not an initiative that we'll ever be finished with because whilst we have put this map in place this trail in place you know that we 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 want our visitors to experience when they come to the wild atlantic way there's loads of other things that we'll we'll be doing um with the participants of the trail going forward just to develop the experience more so we'll be looking at signature dishes and you know really kind of educating the 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 other restaurants and hotels within that area the importance of local sourcing um but as well as that, we hope to extend it and expand it and, and, and allow it to grow. But it will be very much a phase by phase basis, I think. Where can people get more information? You can get more information on the Wild Atlantic Way website, www.wildatlanticway.com forward slash food. It's all on there. Fantastic. We'll, we'll check it out then. Sinead, what's your favourite uh, seafood? Oh, it would have to be oysters. Yeah, I'm have a bit of be. an oyster fan. Oh, natural, or what do you like with oh, them? Oh, natural, natural. Yeah. And you know what? I'm becoming a bit of a, a an oyster snob. Mm. I know, I, and and I and I can taste um, the differences between the, difference. the west oh, and the east. Okay. Yeah, wow. yeah. No, I'm not going to tell you which ones are my favourite, but. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, they're they're becoming a bit of a, a, a we're, we're all becoming a bit of connoisseurs, aren't we? No, I think we, an oyster snob, but you want to say an oyster snob, I but know, you don't want to I say am a snob, yeah, I'm an oyster snob, yeah. Come here, it's great to talk to you as always. Thanks for your Thanks. time. Cheers, chin chin. Salut, Schleiter. Sadly, that brings us to the end of tonight's show, which will be on the podcast later in the week, soundcloud.com forward slash food dash and dash drink dash show. Thanks so much for your company and to all of this evening's guests, Sid Sheehan, Alan Andrews, Dee Laffin and Sinead Hennessy. Until next week, when Ron Forrestal will be here with his wine recommendations and Iman McDonald will be paying a visit to the studio to tell us about her wonderful new cookbook. So until then, have a great week. And bon appétit. Do you want to get in touch with the best possible taste? Do you want to come on, share a recipe, review a cookery book, or just have a general chat about what you like to eat and drink? All you have to do is get in touch with me, Sharon Noonan, by sending an email to s.noonan at live.ie or send me a tweet at Queen of Org. Bon appétit.